morning. I'm going to be reading the scripture passage on which the sermon is based. I'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 21. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you, and a special welcome those who have joined us since the beginning, and also those who are for the first time here at Grace Church. My name is Andis, and I am one of one of the, the teaching elders here in the church. Um, there's something else I wanted to say. Yes, yes, thank you, Andres, for praying. That's that's essential. That's essential that someone prays for us, that God would open our eyes and our hearts to the Word of God every time that we listen to the word. Thank, thank you, Klaus, for, for leading us in, in such an appropriate songs, and Jean for beautifully reading the passage for us. Now, I promised, I promised um, last night on Facebook, if anyone spotted that, it's going to be a, a quick slot of an open mic. So what is, that, um, what is that that you guys remember from one Timothy series? What has stuck? So just in a few seconds, in short, you know, phrases, one sentences, what has stuck with you from one Timothy? So probably half of you have been through most of the series. Is there anything that like particularly struck you from one Timothy that's very memorable, that sits with you? Please, an open mic. Um, you know, a few seconds, half minute or so. Go on. Don't don't embarrass me. Obedience. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Thank you, Annette. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for speaking up. Thank you. That's that's very hard for me. Yeah. And anyone else? What has stuck from one Timothy with you? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Fighting the good fight. Yes, thank you, Robert. Oh, so Ro- Robert mentioned that faithfulness and fighting, fighting of the good fight. That's uh, something that really s- stuck, stuck with him from 1 Timothy. So, Naim, sorry. Yes, the, so the behavior of the leaders of the church, that's important, Yes. Yes, thank you. So, and what did that mean? Uh, that it, it, it means to uh, hold on yes. and uh, proclaim the truth. Uh, hold on and proclaim the truth. Thank you. Anyone else? To be aware and alert of false teaching. 
Yes, thank you, Taylor. That's actually that's in the beginning and the end of the letter. So Paul kind of, even today we'll see he's wrapping up the 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 letter in mind, having in mind these these false teaching guys. That's important. Anyways, thank you, thank you guys. Thank you for uh, sharing some some of that. Uh, I too think that that the two big themes that we have been seeing in one Timothy have been the gospel of God and the godliness of God's people. I think the two big themes of the latter are the gospel of God and the godliness of God's people. And we have seen how these two um, were closely joined together by Paul in his purpose uh, of writing the letter. Andres already mentioned that. So we, we should probably know it by heart by now. Um, turn to uh, chapter 3 and let's look at verses 14 and 15 for the last time today, okay? Where these two themes are joined together. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Apostle Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know who they are and what they have to do. They are God's family, which holds up and holds out God's truth, the good news of Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. So gospel matters. And Paul wants them to know that their day-to-day life is the plausibility structure of just that witness. So our second theme, godliness of God's people, really, really matters. And there is a reason why these two have a prominent place in Paul's letter to Timothy. We already saw that there were some in the church, in Ephesus, who taught different doctrine. So Paul left Timothy to sort that out. Why was sorting that out such a big deal? Why? Because the false teaching led people in the church to false living. Wrongful use of law, as we saw in chapter 1, got exposed as ascetism, we learned later in chapter 4, so denial of the good creation, gifts of God. But the flip side of this was that false living then led back to false teaching. Bizarrely, then false uh, teachers attracted specifically the rich and well-off in the church. The rich were seeking the approval of these false teachers to use godliness as the means of gain. Just glance back at chapter 6, verse 5. Now, is a small nuance in that verse 5 of chapter 6. Paul says, among people, plural, among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So Paul is talking about the people who are then looking for these false teachers who are proof of their way of life. Well, guys, I think this really is really important to look at Paul's teaching for the rich today, 
in this context. Paul is giving the guidelines for the rich in the church as part of taking up the false teachers for the last time. Paul has been clearly saying that the desire to be rich and the love of money is bad. It plunges people into um, ruin. It plunges people into destruction. But on the other hand, Paul has not been saying that money itself is evil or that rich people are somewhat automatically corrupt. That's not what Paul has been saying. So we've seen that money can be used for good. In fact, Paul himself raised money to help the poor and suffering Christians in Jerusalem. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians, also 2 Corinthians. And Paul himself was helped by some of the rich donors in churches um, that he planted. Paul was funded by some well-off people in his missionary journeys. So money is not bad. Rich people are not automatically corrupt. And so having cleared away the potential misunderstanding that we might have, firstly, we see in verses 17 to 19 that Paul addresses those who are already rich. And by the way, he's not suggesting that they give up everything that they have. And secondly, from verses 20 to 21, Paul addresses Timothy and commands him to guard the deposit, which, by the way, is not cash that the rich gave away, okay? So we also need to clear some initial misunderstanding here before we start. So let's look at the the rich first, as for the rich in this present age. So the question is, what if, what if you already happen to be rich? Now, I do realize that none of us here regard ourselves as rich. And so, friends, this morning we are in danger of dismissing altogether what Paul is saying here. I'm not rich. You know, I can just snooze off a bit with, you know, the radiators or or, or something. Now, as we were chatting about the definition of rich um, in our weekly men's preaching group, one of us um, jokingly uh, said, you know, we were chatting, what, what is the definition of rich? Rich is someone who has more than I do. That's a very convenient position, isn't it? This is how our fleshly materialist I thinks. That's um, an example of it. And indeed, friends, according to Forbes magazine, none of us are rich here. No one is rich. None of us have an impressive portfolio of investments or real estate or company profit going out of the roof, uh, through roof. According to Forbes, no one is rich here. But according to Bible, everyone is rich here. We have much more than just food and clothing, don't we? And so we too fall under those who need to hear Paul's words to the rich in this present age. Now, Paul's twofold charge is about, verse 17, look, attitude. Verse 18, actions, and verse 19, outcome. So attitude, charge them 
not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, not to be haughty. Haughty means high-minded. Haughty means proud. This seems to be the disease of the rich, particularly. Paul rightly challenges pride as unchristian attitude. In his letter to Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul asks a rhetorical question to the rich. What do you have that you did not receive? What is that? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And one common danger Paul sees for the rich is meritocracy. Does anyone know what meritocracy is? I looked up the dictionary. Meritocracy is government or the holding of power by people selected according to merit. Now, Australian pastor Philip Jensen worded it precisely. Self-made people worshipping their maker. Self-made people worshipping their maker. Do not take pride in your buying power, Paul says. And I think Paul says it to all of us here. You know that feeling when you go into the grocery shop and you do not have necessarily to look at the price tags. Of course you don't. I mean, this is the only thing that we do when we walk into the grocery shop now. We only look at the price tags. But but you know what I mean, you know, when you can afford to buy anything. Now, the danger for the rich is thinking that their buying power buys them security too. And that is why Paul charges them next, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Indeed, to do so would be a foolishness. Now, when I read not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, um, immediately this charge echoes a familiar story from Jesus. Do you remember the parable of the rich fool? Like, I nod if you slightly remember the parable. Anyways, the parable of the rich fool. There was a rich guy who didn't know where to put and store up all his wealth. Now, he finally figured it out. He built a larger, he built larger barns, and he stopped, stopped his barns with all of his goods. But what he says to himself is the most telling thing. Listen, and I will say to my soul, So you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But in that story, Jesus says, God, God said, Fool, fool, tonight you will die. Now, let's call this rich guy Raymond. Is there any Raymonds here? Hopefully not. I mean, if you happen to be Raymond here, it's not about you necessarily. Let's call him Raymond. I was thinking hard. Is there any Raymonds in Grace Church? No. Let's call him Raymond. Raymond has his ribeye steak. And these all are are Googled as the most expensive things, okay? Raymond has his ribeye steak with nice glass of Screaming Eagle Cabernet, 500,000 a bottle. 
he checks out how his shares are doing on the stock market in the evening. And then he fixes his margarita. And then he, he, he decides to breathe some fresh air on his terrace of his penthouse, facing the storyline of the Riga old town, Raymond. And as he says to himself, dude, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. A sharp pain in his chest takes away his breath, and he dies on the terrace on his penthouse facing the old town of Riga. Now, friends, we already know the answer to the question, how much did he leave? He left everything. Exactly, you're good students. He left everything. We, bought, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, how foolish it is to think that you are a self-made man, autonomous and secure, because of what you have. It is so, so silly how dumb it is to set hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's madness. But what is the alternative for the rich? Indeed, for us too. What is the alternative? And Paul says, do not set hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. But what does that mean? What does that mean to set hope on God instead of the uncertainty of riches? Does God expect me to sell all that I have? Does God expect me to ditch my studies uh, or work and just trust in his mercies? Is that the alternative for godly people? Well, is Paul suggesting that? A glance at verse 17. Take a look at, at verse 17, how it ends. Trust in or set your hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, Paul appears to be saying quite the opposite of selling everything, ditch your job or studies, and depend on your relatives and friends for support. Right? Paul says, hoping in God means acknowledging that ultimately he provides for you. Think of that. He provides for you a place to live. He provides for you uh, income to pay for the utilities. He provides for you income to pay for food on your table, for clothes to put on. Now, I thought it's strange that Paul didn't mention footwear earlier. I think footwear is very important in Latvia, don't you think? <laughs> Just. Anyways, he, he must have slightly forgotten about that. But I think there is more to this verse. Take another look at it. God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God does not give us what we need only. He gives us more. Is that not interesting? Not only more, but Paul says richly. He gives us much more. And notice God gives us much more that we may feel guilty about this. No, 
to enjoy it. Friends, it is not sinful to have food on the table from selection by Rimi, just that it is not more godly to have food only from Rimi basic. Indeed, there might be all sorts of greedy reasons for living off of Rimi basic, like already saving for the iPhone 17. Which iPhone is out? Is it 13 or 14? So, 17. So you can live off really basic to just get this iPhone 17 in like 10 years' time, and it's going to be like a 21 already. Or, or you can live off uh, really basic just because you want to end up in this $10,000 holiday resort in two years' time. So, again, we need to think about that carefully. It's not sinful to have food on table from selection by Rimi necessarily. And it's not more godly to live off just uh, a minimum. There can be all sorts of greedy reasons. Now, friends, we already know that Paul is not advocating for the luxurious lifestyle here. That would, be, that would go against everything that he has taught us uh, in, in, in this letter about contentment. But I do think that he's speaking here on the false teachers who preach the gospel of austerity. Now, austerity means um, the gospel of poverty, basically. Uh, and they might as well have the, the, their motto, living, uh, live simply that others may simply live. You know, this is a deep green motto, live simply that others may simply live. Now, we, we saw how they were suggesting that godliness is tied to not eating certain foods, not getting married. So, so they denied the good gifts of God's creation. Paul says they all are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving in their proper place and in their proper time. But according to Paul, there is a reason why God provides for us more than we need. Did you, did you notice that? God gives us richly so that we could joyfully share with others who are in need. So the right attitude grows into right actions. Action, verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, interesting, just compare verses 17 and 18. Interesting how the action of verse 18 mirrors the attitude of verse 17. Just as we are to hope in God who gives us more than we need to enjoy it all, we now are not only to do good, but to be rich in good works, joyfully ready to share. Now, I think the principle is plain and simple here, right? Those who are rich share with those who are in need. It's plain and simple here. I know a Christian businessman with an extraordinary big heart. Well, I don't think he, I even realized the extent of his generosity. Well, back in the days, he certainly laid foundation to uh, my ministry training in London. And on many other occasions, he showed himself to be rich 
in, in many, many good works. Uh, sometimes, even, sometimes it even seems that he is deliberately seeking out the opportunity where to give. He's interested in what's going on around him so that he may give. Extraordinary. So this summer, he and his wife visited us in Salkrasti. Uh, there I learned that he is building a small house, but again, not for himself, but for someone else in his extended family. And we were talking about the Ukrainian war and how it has affected millions of people and destroyed so many lives and how it affects many people here. And as we were chatting, he almost broke in tears because he realized that he cannot help everyone in this heating season. Extraordinary. Now, friends, what about us? Because we are, in a sense, we already saw, rich too. How can we be rich in good works, practicing generosity, ready to share with what we have, no matter how much we think we have? Here, here's a few questions. Maybe not all of the questions are for everyone. Have you sorted out your church giving yet? I know it can take some time. But have you thought about this? Have you spotted where you might give a hand in some practical things around the church? Have you decided to put an extra effort into the plate for the next church lunch? Have you thought whom you might have over for a dinner around Christmas time? And so on. There's so many questions we could be asking ourselves about generosity, good works, and sharing Now, doing good, being rich in good works, generous and ready to share, it does not simply point to the big heart of someone. Paul says it points to our heavenly investment. It might sound weird uh, at the first, uh, first glance, but the result of right actions that flow out of the right attitude is heavenly investment. That's what Paul is saying. Look at the result in verse 19. Thus, Paul says, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So what does Paul mean by storing up treasures in heaven? Now, firstly, we need to understand what Paul doesn't mean. Paul doesn't mean that we earn the eternal life by doing good. Paul doesn't mean that we earn eternal life by being generous or by sharing. If that would be the case, then Jesus came into the world to save sinners in vain. Okay? So what does Paul mean by, sort, uh, by storing up treasures in heaven? And we need to realize it is always the response to the gospel, always, only a response. Here, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew uh, chapter 6, his words, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then Jesus concludes, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, God has given us things that we have to use for benefit of others, because he has given us much more than we need. Well, that, according to Paul, creates a portfolio in heaven. What is this portfolio in heaven? It is the fruit of the gospel. It is a tangible uh, proof that we have grasped the grace of God towards us. It is a good foundation for the future. Remember, nothing is going with us to heaven. Nothing from this earth, apart from what? Godliness. Godliness, it has the value for the life to come too. The foundation or even legacy that we might be willing to build here on this earth or leave for our children, it will perish. It will perish. But foundation for the future, it will last. So friends, here is Paul's summary for the rich, for us. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them to be rich for the future. I think if we could condense Paul in this passage, it's, as for the rich in this present age, charge them to be rich for the future, full stop. And I think Paul's challenge here for us is, which age do we truly belong? Which age do we truly belong? To the present age or to the coming age? And how can anyone tell to which age we belong? Well, friends, I think these are Paul's words for the mature, for those who, verse 17, sorry, 19, are willing to take hold of that which is truly life. Paul really, really speaks to the mature. Now, my children, who are watching Peacefully Cartoon and are not, listening to me and, and don't understand English so well, they have this uh, childish faith. It is, it, it's a genuine faith, I think. It's a true faith. But it is immature yet. They really enjoy their life now. Well, for the most of the days, they do enjoy their life now. Okay? They are bad days. We all have bad days. And they also are looking forward to the new creation. But in their mind... Life in the new heavens and new earth is going to be literally the same, but without limit and without restraint. That's what they are thinking. So now they can have ice cream sometimes. In heaven, they will be able to have ice cream all the time, right? That's their thinking. Now they can watch cartoons only some days. In heaven, they will be able to watch cartoons Every day. And so the examples and list goes. Heaven is going to be this wonderful life, but just much more better without any limitations and parents saying no to them. Now, here is the problem, uh, friends. This is a childish version of glory now and glory later. 
And that is um, wanting both my best life now and truly life later. But that is not how it works, Jesus says. Do you remember Jesus' conversation with Peter somewhere in the middle of um, chapter 8 in Mark? Jesus told Peter some and the disciples some really, really heavy words. If you want to save life now, you will lose it. And what did he mean by saving? Again, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to have the best life now, to have all the, all the riches and experiences of this life? What does it profit if you lose your soul? And so if you truly understand the gospel, you will battle the desire for your best life now. And you will desire life, which is truly life. You will long for the coming age. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. But friends, we have seen from 1 Timothy that there is more at stake. You see, in light of this letter, we bear an extra responsibility. If we truly are to be the Grace Church, as I named the series a pillar and buttress of the truth, then we should care about where other people end up, where other people are going. And that depends on what they will embrace. Are they going to embrace the present age with all of its uh, benefits and advantages, or are they going to embrace the age to come? And they will embrace one or the other depending on who they are listening to, and whose example they are following. And that is why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, to teach the truth, to the refute the error, and to set believers' example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So here is Paul's concluding command to the young pastor, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now, we already said that it doesn't mean sitting on cash that the rich were giving to the church, okay? The deposit is the faith. The deposit is the commandment. Flip back to chapter 1 and verse 11. So Paul says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Glance, I think that's what is the deposit, 111. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Timothy is supposed to guard this deposit. Well, not by hiding it well from others, but exactly the opposite. He's supposed to guard the gospel by holding it up and holding it out for everyone to see and hear. Command and teach, Paul has been saying occasionally. Teach and urge these things, Paul repeatedly said in this letter. 
And there is no other gospel. No other gospel. Timothy is supposed to teach the gospel of Christ Jesus. And he's supposed to refute so-called gospel of prosperity, prosperity gospel, which holds that godliness can be used as the means of gain. And Timothy is to refute the so-called austerity gospel, which holds that godliness is found in rejecting the good creation gifts of God. And this all is, Paul says, falsely called knowledge. It turns the church inwards and it makes it all about do's and don'ts. It produces rivalry, it produces quarrels, it produces dissension, it produces divisions, and ultimately it brings the gospel to ruin. The Grace Church, on the other hand, is supposed to be outward-looking church. Holding up and holding out the gospel of Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners. The Grace Church is supposed to be a praying church who seeks the salvation of all people because that is who our God is. God is our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, the true knowledge. Now, friends, there is much more that I could be saying about that in a summary, and I would really need another sermon of the recap of the whole letter. But just bear in mind this one final thought about the uniqueness of the church that we belong to. Church is the one organization that exists for non-members. I know we, you know, we are welcoming the, the members in these weeks, um, you know, week by week. But it doesn't change our mission. The church is the only, only organization that exists for the non-members. So if you are visiting today, we are here for you. We are here for you. At least it is true about the Grace Church. Well, it may be true for the Grace International Church. And so Paul says to us and to the Ephesian Christians, grace be with you. Let's pray. Gracious, wonderful, uh, heavenly Father, you are rich in mercy and grace towards us. You have given us much, much more than we need in this, this world. So, Father, please, please um, help us to realize that. Please may it shape our attitude towards what we have. Please make us humble by realizing how gracious you have been towards us. And may that attitude shape our actions. Please, please equip us to be rich in good works. Joyful, not only in enjoying your good gifts, but also in sharing in your good gifts with others who are in need. And so, Father... By doing that, may us be really confident that we are laying a good foundation for the future. 
No, we are not saving ourselves by our good works. You have saved us through the cross of Christ. But Father, as a proof of your grace in our lives, may we be known as people who are rich in good works and generous people. And may we never forget that this is something that adorns our mission as we seek to uh, hold up and hold out the gospel of Christ to the lost world. So the people who joined the Grace International would hear the truth and see the truth in action and would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so you, Father, God, our Savior, would be glorified through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Anders.